Nimbility is the intersection of resilience and innovation. And it's the ability to face disruptions or chaos and thrive. Every large organization that's been very successful but has failed did so because of a lack of nimbility. They were one. They were unable to face the new demands and the new consequences and the new requirements of what was going on in the marketplace. I met today's guest a few weeks ago, and after visiting with him for just a few minutes, I knew that you guys had to meet him too. He has come out with two new books at the same time, (laughs) he and his co-author, and they really challenge us to think through the status quo personally and within our organization, and what's working, what's not working, and let's look at how we can do things differently with more innovation and strategy. And you know I love a good strategic approach. (laughs) So I am excited for you to hear this conversation with Mark Smith. He has worked for years, as he'll share, with bringing billions of dollars into disruptive technology. So he really understands the ins and outs of organizations and has worked with many C-suite leaders who are working to transform their business. And he has so much nonprofit knowledge as well from working with organizations, both nonprofits and businesses. And he has just a really interesting perspective that he can bring both sides to the table. And he has two new books called The Nimble C-Suite and The Nimble Company, which he'll talk about a little bit more. And he and his co-founder are really dedicated to helping leaders embrace the idea of nimbility. And he brings some broad leadership perspective, business models, and also just some really strong coaching skills that are super practical and actionable and really challenges us to think in a transformational mindset to improve and just innovate and make something different that really appeals and makes a difference in the world. And that's what we're all about, right? And that's why we're here, so that we can make a difference on our missions. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Mark Smith. Mark, welcome. I am excited to talk with you. Before we start, tell us a random fact about yourself. A random fact, when I was in college, I used to climb the radio tower in at the radio station uh, to change the light bulbs and one time actually do maintenance on the antenna. And part of the reason why is the chief engineer for the radio station was so obese, he couldn't do it. And so they asked if I would do it. And when they told me how much they would pay me for it, which was a king's ransom back in those days, I said, yes. So I am a tower climber uh, as a profession at one point in my career. Okay. Interesting. So I guess you're not really afraid of heights. Oh, no. Or you got over it. Oh, oh, I'm quite afraid of heights. But for the amount of money they paid me, I figured out how to trick myself into being okay that far off the ground. Okay, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) This could turn into a mind-tricking lesson. (laughs) Oh, it was was a mind trick, but but don't get me wrong. It was safe. I was was secured to the tower at every point. Mm -hmm. I wasn't free climbing. Sure, but still the thought of being that far off the ground. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it wasn't the the fact that it was off the ground. We're okay at, you know, 42,000 feet in airplanes. Sure. It's the thought of falling 
<laughs> right. And making contact with the ground. <laughs> yeah, that would have ended badly. Yeah. Well, obviously you made it through and lived to tell this tale. And here you are with that on your resume. That, well, I don't know if it's on my resume, but it just, you know, <laughs> it just that was back in my radio days. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Well, tell us a little bit about your days. And I know you have a lot of interesting experience, and I want to dig into that today, but give us a little sneak peek. Let's do this quickly so that's in context for your listener. I'm a business growth strategist. I help executives and organizations plot the path to the future. And what that means is we look at every aspect that's required to grow the business, mindset, skill set, habit set, marketplace, sales, marketing, customer service, product development. And we look at all those elements to figure out, okay, what's the best way to increment the growth of the organization? And I've done that over the past three and a half decades, working primarily in the high-tech world, because they always had lots of money to spend, and bringing to market new ideas that had not been presented to the market before. And so, we call those disruptive products. Mm -hmm. And so, I've helped literally bring billions and billions of dollars to market with companies like Hewlett-Packard and IBM and Microsoft and Oracle and NetApp. And I learned a heck of a lot along the way. How do you communicate ideas that people have never thought before? That, that's one of the things that disruptive products bring to you is I've never thought about that. Heck, I, I don't know if I could use that. that. That doesn't make any sense to me. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're using it all the time. You know, the, uh, the, the probably the, the best example of a disruptive product are these things, smartphones. And if 12 years ago, I told you that, hey, I've got a telephone for you, but there's no buttons. <laughs> There's no yeah. dials. There's no wires. And you go, what are yeah. you talking about? Mm-hmm. And, and now, I mean, there is, there is just a couple of buttons on this thing. There's, there's three buttons on this. What? And we have access to a whole computer and a That's world of information on it. Exactly. So how does this relate to nonprofits? Well, most nonprofits are bringing new ideas to the world new ways of doing things, new ways of up-leveling humanity, new ways of up-leveling their, their constituents. And how do you message that to those organizations? So that's one of the ways that we could apply this idea. The second thing is that I understand how business works because I've worked with all these businesses for many, many years and understand how do we, how do we grow them. And those resulted in the two new books that are shown on my screen, which is The Nimble C-Suite and The Nimble Company. And today, uh, I think what we want to do is talk about how do we bring the concept of nimbility to uh, nonprofit organizations so that they can better accomplish their mission. Agreed. And that's exactly why I wanted you to talk to the audience today, because I knew you would be a wealth of information and strategic thinking and pushing us to think outside the box, which I like to do and challenge us to think creatively. And that sometimes we get in a rut and forget, like it's okay to be creative and to really dig into new ideas and disrupt the status quo, like you say. So let's dig in. All right, let's go. <laughs> well, I've been reading your first book, as I mentioned, and oh, I you. would really like for you to dig in and kind of set the stage with the different types of economy and the transformation that we're seeing and just give us that context, first of all. Yeah, I think, you know, the reason why we're going to talk about that is because, you know, this this is one of two books that I released this year with my co-author, David Gruder, Dr. David Gruder. Mm. And a lot of people say, what, what do you release two books at a time? Yeah, we're insane. Uh, 
<laughs> why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? And uh, uh, this is uh, one of many books that I've written. So this is it's, it's just fun to do this. But the reason why we're talking about it is the nimble C-suite. And the concept of nimbility is the intersection of innovation and uh, resilience. And we have to have both if we're going to be disruptive and, and, and allow this to happen. So it's how to align the diverse strengths of your executive team to predictably um, deliver extraordinary outcomes in a transformational economy. So from a context standpoint, we're going to talk about the economies to put the rest of this work into context. So um, mm-hmm. that, that's why, j- just so that you understand, listener, we're really not jumping around. <laughs> right. And you know I, mean? I think what you're saying now is the time, as we've talked before, this is the time for this kind of message, for this kind of framework. People are needing to reshift and find our footing again after the last few years of ups and downs. So this will help provide some encouragement and strategies to move forward. Absolutely. I think context is the most important aspect to this. And yes, over the past three years, we have been traumatized as a world. Mm-hmm. And uh, our our core our core concerns have all been wounded with, with uh, abandonment and separation and all of those things. It's been really hard, especially for people that ha- don't have tools to deal with those things. Mm-hmm. And so we have to bring healing. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed is um people are are well we all zoom these days you know we don't we rarely phone we all mm-hmm. zoom right but the the problem with zoom is it requires agreement to a time and a place and i've decided to stop that i mean yes you and i are having this conversation because we've agreed to have it and just pick up the phone and dial <laughs> it's funny and that seems old fashioned now but it's still effective people are picking up People are sure. having conversations. They're saying, I, I was just thinking about you. And, I, and the conversation is along the lines of, well, me too. Maybe that's why we're talking. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the point is, is that reconnection as we come out of the insanity of the past thousand days is so critical. Right. And to put into context, that has accelerated the move to the transformational economy. And I don't think we would have moved into that as quickly if we didn't have the insanity of the past thousand days. (laughs) Right. It's kind of forced us into this new avenue and we're trying to figure out what it is and navigate this. And so, yeah, explain to us what you mean by that. Indeed. In fact, I think not just forced, but also pulled us into Right. Right. Ready or not. (laughs) So the, the basic idea, and I'm going to refer to the cheat sheet of, of my book here, sure. the idea is that a value proposition and sales method works with each economic wave. An economic wave is what is it in the economy that is generating the most value and therefore the most revenue? And as a nonprofit, you want to be on the peak of that value curve, even though you're not looking for revenue, you are looking to provide services that map to what people have decided is important in this moment. And we started when we were tribes in the subsistence economy. And that is we would just get enough to to meet our needs and live. And, And the goal was, I'm alive, I'm living. And there are still parts of the planet that operate in a subsistence economy. If you go to Bali, it's a subsistence economy. 
You've got the house in back, the shop in front. That's a subsistence type of economy. And then as tribes begin to settle, we move to the commodity economy where we would grow crops or we would, we would mine minerals or we would cut down wood. And then people would buy and trade those commodities. And the goal was I'm productive. So beyond subsistence to I'm productive and I can create more than I can consume. Therefore, that was the economy we focused on. And of course, that economy still exists. It just isn't the leading part of the economy. But if we rewind the clock 100 years, half the population was involved in making food. Now it's less than 1%. Wow. <laughs> right? It's a big difference in the shift in the economy. Mm-hmm. And then we moved into the product economy, and that really began with the, uh, the Industrial Revolution, where we would start to create products with machines, And uh, this is where people started to buy labor savings. So instead of making your own clothing, you would buy clothing that was already made. Instead of weaving your own cloth, you would buy cloth that was already woven. And the goal was, I'm an efficient person. And then this is where really we started to have fairly massive changes in how people lived, where they could actually afford things because they could generate value beyond what they could in the past. And so people would earn wages and we moved into, you know, the really the environment of uh, 150, 100 years ago. Then um, the service economy emerged in after the Second World War when two earner families needed to buy time. So we would buy services that we normally would have done on our own back in the farming days. We would buy those services, you know, whether it was uh, repairs or cleaning or food preparation or professional services or something like that. I mean, you know, we moved from doing our own taxes to having accountant do our taxes. There's a good example of that. And then we moved to the experience economy. And this really happened in, in the 90s. And this is where people started choosing memorable experiences, not just service, but memorable service. And uh, this is when social media really started coming into play. Netflix and Google and Yelp and going to Las Vegas are all uh, um, experience economy examples. And the goal is to get to the point where I'm an interesting person. And you can see how the ascension Mm -hmm. has been climbing up. So people go to Las Vegas to come home with stories because you can gamble anywhere in the United States now. Doesn't really matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Gambling's not the thing, but it's going there and seeing the shows that are impossible to produce unless you have millions of people show up every year and buy tickets for them. You know, you there's no way to reproduce those kind of shows outside of Vegas. To recreate that experience. That's exactly right. So you come and get stories that nobody else can tell, and you go home and I'm an interesting person. And of course, we do that on social media. People get on social media and they illustrate that they're an important person because of all the important things they're doing, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But I think this is actually one of the things that nonprofits have missed is bringing the experience, the unique experience, the desirable experience to what they drive. And they operate more of in a service economy kind of mode, which is long gone as far as being a peak desire and instead bring the experience, whether it's to the contributors uh, or the members or those that are consuming their services. You have to bring an entertaining or experience element to this to make it sticky and interesting. 
Because quite frankly, nonprofits are competing with Netflix. Unfortunately, true. It's not unfortunate. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not unfortunate. I, could, <laughs> I, I, I demand that you take that back. Okay, I'll take it back. All right. And, why and the so? Reason, well, the reason why is because once you understand that, then you can compete with Netflix. Okay. But if you don't know that you're competing with Netflix, how do you know what to do to become as interesting or as exciting or as engaging as what Netflix does? Mm-hmm. So how do you compete with that? Well, it's easy. It's that you bring yourself to the next level of this, the next transformation. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Set me right up there. <laughs> well, you did. Thank you very much. You moved to the transformation. I got you. you do. Thank you. You moved to the transformational economy where people start, instead of buying memorable, start buying meaningful. Mm-hmm. And and uh, authentic and making themselves a better person. And in the transformational economy, what people purchase is make it better, make me better, make us better. Mm-hmm. And if you know how to do that, if you can figure out how to do that, then you can compete with Netflix. Mm-hmm. Because it takes them beyond just, I'm an interesting person and I binged watched this show. Yeah, put that on your resume. <laughs> right. put, that on your t- put that on your tombstone. Or give that something to talk about at a dinner or a luncheon that you binge Netflix versus giving back to this meaningful cause that's helping build something in the community. That's, that's right. And and I guarantee you, if you're having lunch with your friend and you know they ask the question, so what's lighting you up these days? Um, st- talking about how you're involved in a nonprofit to make it better, make us better, make the community better is going to be way more interesting than, oh, I just finished binge watching the latest Netflix. There's no competition. Right, right. And it sparks interest in something bigger, something better in that. That's that's exactly right. And so the idea, the goal is uh, in that particular place is, um, you know, with transformational economy uh, is I'm a better person. Mm-hmm. So appealing to the the core of what we want to be or do or become, as opposed to just a existing person. existence. That, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And so we're moving away from more narcissistic to more altruistic. How lovely is that? It, it's a relief, but also how do we balance that out then? With, uh, well, with go ahead. Oh, with the education, the opportunities, the understanding of uh, uh, you bring needed. the tra- you bring the transformational um, view set, the mindset, the transform- transformational lens to those things. We can transform. We we can make anything better. We can make education better. We can make services better. We can make donating better. We can make grant writing better. All of those things can be improved by applying the, the transformational concept of make it better, make me better, make us better. And by the way, we didn't make that stuff up. That came from uh, original research done by one of the members of the Nobility Works, which I'm part of. And so th- this, is, this is real data. This is what people are craving today. Mm-hmm. It's what they're willing to pay for today. And the rapidly co- growing com- companies are providing this transformation. So we expect for the uh, transformational economy to be economy to be as disruptive as any of the other economies 
because it means that we have to do things different. The rules change when we have a transformational economy. Tell us, you've used the word nimbility several times, and I liked how you explained that in your book. Tell us what you mean by that. Yes, um, nimbility is the intersection of resilience and innovation. And it's the ability to face disruptions or chaos and thrive. <laughs> Which <laughs> we're in the middle of right now. So that's definitely <laughs> highly relevant. And it's not going to slow down. Right. The amount of chaos and disruption has just increased exponentially as has technology. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that we have to become nimble in our mindset, in our skill set, in our habit set, mm-hmm. if we're going to make it through here. Um, and every organ, every large organization that's been very successful but has failed did so because of a lack of nimbility. Mm-hmm. They were one, they were unable to face the new demands and the new consequences and the new requirements of what was going on in the marketplace. And of course, when you face chaos, and chaos is really simply this, I can't see the pattern. I, I don't see a pattern here. Versus if you're facing something that's known, oh, I see the pattern, I know what to do. In chaos, I don't see the pattern, so I don't know what to do. And that's, that's the difference. And sometimes just that definition helps. Once we've defined it, then we can figure out what to do. But initially, it's overwhelming, and we don't even know how to define it. That's right. So in in chaos, of course, the idea is let's pick one thing that we do know. Let's let's pick the one thing that we do recognize, and then we we walk ourselves into the, the world of chaos as we identify the pattern. And this came. This really comes from my engineering background where when you face an unknown problem, the first thing you start with is you write down everything you do know. Mm-hmm. Very and logical. That's very tangible and practical. Is, like we can is, all do that. That's exactly right. And it also brings us some hope. Right. That it's, where it's not as far gone. It's not as chaotic as we thought. Mm-hmm. And I like to point out, like, even if it seems too simple or silly, like if you're looking back at your experience and, you know, you climbed water tower or radio towers and changed light bulbs, that's a unique, interesting thing. <laughs> it's still a fun conversation piece. So even in a nonprofit, when you're writing down things, like you said, nothing is too small or too silly. Take that inventory because you don't know what might connect with those dots. Well, I like where you're going there because small and silly are judgments. True. And And that's where it may feel like it, but dump it out anyway. Yes. It might be useful. Yes, because you might be able to show somebody who doesn't think it's small and silly, and all of a sudden they can connect dots that if you call them small and silly and disregard them through that judgment, that you're missing. Exactly. And, And so sometimes by calling things small and silly, we create blind spots. Right. Okay. We always create blind spots when we create judgments. Right. And that's a tough one to uncover, whether it's ourselves or board and leadership. That's tough to crack the code on those sometimes. Indeed. In fact, in, in, our, in the book, The Nimble Company, which is the companion volume, we go into depth into blind spots. There's really only there's three reasons why a well-meaning executive fails. And those are they have blind spots. They don't know what they don't know. 
and the second reason is they have misunderstandings. What they used to know isn't true anymore, or it's true, but not useful, or it's true, but not applicable in this context. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, boy. Have, have, have I been fried by that one? Oh, I've got the answer. Ooh, I didn't have the context. Yeah. And, and, and then the third reason why they fail, even, even though they're well-meaning, is withholds. Somebody in the organization doesn't give them the information they need. Somebody is keeping information. And it could be well-meaning. Oh, I don't want to bother the boss with this. Or it could be political. Oh, I'm going to control this information flow. Mm-hmm. And those are the three reasons why an, uh, a well-meaning leader might fail. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Blind spots, misunderstandings, and withholds. And, and one of the things that we need to do culturally is excise those three. And we talk about how to do that in the Nimble Company. We, we, we discuss it uh, in the Nimble C-Suite too, but we go into depth in the Nimble Company on how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so those things increase our nimbility because in chaos, all of a sudden we invoke blind spots. We actually create them. Mm-hmm. And we do that because we start to ignore or rationalize red flags. Mm-hmm. They become and normal and accepted and you get used to them. And Yes. And what we don't know is there's a freight train coming down the track. Mm-hmm. Or maybe free. we hope it'll stop before it gets to us. Uh, yeah, keep that hope going. Keep <laughs> it going. A, a, dis- yeah. a disruption is headed your way. Mm-hmm. So y- yes, indeed, those blind spots are are um, are killers for organizations. And 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 you know, I, I think that nonprofits have an inordinate amount of these three issues more than most organizations. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. And part of it is just because of the the lens, the mindset that people work within an organization. Oh, this is a nonprofit that doesn't really matter. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> right. Or they come in not knowing anything about nonprofits and bringing only business skills as opposed to learning how nonprofits operate or not bringing enough business skills to the yes. equation to operate it well. Yes. That's exactly right. As, as you and I well know, nonprofit is a tax status, not a business plan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and much to many people's surprise. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> Especially those that want to launch a nonprofit but have no money. Right. Uh, well, well, you have to run it like a business. You mean you can't just get a grant for that? Uh, wouldn't that wouldn't that be nice? I'm being grant, snarky. It's it's good though, but grants are given away because the grant the grantor has a business rationale in mind, right? And they're looking for a solid investment. That's exactly right. The only thing is, we just don't have to give the money back, but they're looking right. for a return, right? An energetic term, a, a, a psychic return, or or even a some sort of monetary return that will be indirect. Right. Some kind of impact. Yep. That's exactly right. On that investment. You're recapping my whole TEDx talk right there. (laughs) Wow. I must have watched it. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Oh, oh, so, you know, we were talking about the transformational economy and and how uh, you have identified by reading the book and your area of expertise in the worlds of nonprofits is that 
nonprofits really have to embrace this concept of being transformational. They have to embrace the concept of being nimble, bring the innovation into the world where the, it, it appears to be chaotic. And then we add the next piece, which is uh, bringing resilience. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind having resilience is that a lot of times innovation fails. It's an iterative cycle as we get to the place to where innovation actually works. And so you have to have the resources. If you can't bounce, you can't bounce back. And those resources are going to be mental. They're going to be emotional. They're going to be financial. They're going to be political. You have to have room to make, to make mistakes if you're going to be resilient. You have to celebrate the fact that, oh, that didn't work. What did we learn? All right. It's all good. We don't fire people for experimenting. We fought, we fire free people people for sitting on their hands. Mm-hmm. Right. For slowing things down and holding it back. That's it. So there's a cultural element to being resilient that is important to consider. But the biggest concept here is that, you know, you go into a, a, an innovative situation with the resources to fail, not necessarily the expectation to fail. That's dumb. Mm-hmm. But the resources to fail and do it again. And the mindset mm-hmm. of learning, yeah. of failing forward. Right. And not being afraid of failing. Mm-hmm. Like, it'll be okay. We'll figure it out. We'll keep going and learn from that. Exactly. And you take a look at any child, you know, who's two, three years old, who's learning how to walk, learning how to talk, learning how to manipulate their environment. And it is constant failure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely constant failure. And yet they stop. They don't stop. They keep going. And as parents, we encourage them to keep going. Right. So somewhere along the way, it shifts. That's exactly right. And the place where it starts to shift is where we stop celebrating their innovations and stop and start limiting their innovations. Mm -hmm. It's, It's that time when we have a child where we go from, oh, yay. That's so wonderful. I love your new word. Yay. Mm-hmm. You ran across to where they grab a crayon and start growing, start drawing on the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you're even you're just you're even grimacing <laughs> doing that. <laughs> yeah, I'm picturing myself and my own kids and yep. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Yep. The history is there. And and all of a sudden the innovation. Uh, yep. What? Cross that boundary. What? And they don't even know what the boundary is. Right. The boundary is unknown because we've told them that innovation is great until we decide that we need to, and it it really freaks a child out. Mm -hmm. I thought I was, I thought I was unstoppable. I thought that I was um, just absolutely master of my world. And then all of a sudden you're telling me I'm not what? So then in a nonprofit, how can we shift that back around within a good, healthy direction to become more innovative again All right, and not so we be have, afraid of that? So the thing is, we have to be, we have to create boundaries that are acceptable behavior mm-hmm. and behaving is something that's required for us to operate in a civil way. And my point is really with that story is that we start off with, with nothing but innovation. And then along the way, our innovation gets squelched and we don't know why. And so we become afraid of innovating because of punishment. Mm 
And that gets built into us at a very young age. And so as we mature, we have to learn how to remove those barriers of fear of punishment for innovation. And the way that we can do that in an organization is to make it okay to innovate. Now you do those through initiatives. All right, we need to implement change in how we deliver our services. How do we innovate that? And we're gonna try some stuff and odds are it probably won't work out very well, but we're gonna learn from that and we're gonna fail forward. And how can we do better? How can we compete for those grants if we're not at least bringing something new to the table? Otherwise, we might as well photograph, photocopy a grant from 25 years ago and submit it. <laughs> I don't think that's going to fly, right. but that's mostly no. what people are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, just bringing that into the different contexts of the work, maybe it's with the program or with trying out a different grant or understanding that we're not going to get all of these and that's part of the process, but we can get better and better every time. Well, think, think about it this way. Grant writing is a sales process. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course you thought about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a sales process. And if you haven't done your research, you'll have no idea how to make your pitch, your sales pitch. Mm-hmm. Any and kind of fundraising is, it's it, really all, a type of sales. All fundraising is a sales activity. Everything. But even more deeply when it's done well, it's a relationship building activity. Well, that's that what leads sales, to sales. Well, well, that would be marketing. Mm, true. The definition of marketing in my world is every activity that leads to a conversation or interaction. Mm-hmm. And what we do with marketing is we earn the right to educate them on what we do. And then once we have earned that right to educate them on what we do and how that fits into their world and brings value to them, then we, we have earned the right to sell, which is the conversation about how we create a transaction that values both parties or both parties value. Mm-hmm. And then once we've done that, then we've earned the right to transact. And it's a, it's a sequence. We have to go through that sequence, at least initially, to, to make right. things happen. And build and trust along the way. Well, of course, and the, the trust—the trust is what keeps it going. Because mm-hmm. the moment that we do a right. trust buster, it's interrupted and they're gone, and they right. are irretrievable. Right. Yeah. And of course, trust comes from authenticity and integrity. Mm-hmm. And if you can be natural, if you can be yourself, and if you can do what you say you're going to do, then the trust happens through inter- the interactions. And those take time. Those it does. We it can't happen overnight. It takes time to build that trust and to build that long-term relationship and that longevity. Absolutely true. Consistency mm-hmm. is a major factor to trust. If they if you're acting different every time you have a conversation with them or every time they interact with your website, of course that um, um, that insanity is frequent and nonprofits where there is a mm-hmm. lack of consistency across the marketing messages that right. it's schizophrenic. <laughs> right. It can't be, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and that's, that, yes. Well, I think that speaks to sometimes living on the bare bones budget of, oh, we've got a volunteer for this or an intern for that or somebody else helping with that. And then it looks pieced together instead and of having that consistency. That's right. And that, that lack of consistency damages trust. Right. Right. Because I think we underrate that. Uh, yeah, you do. 
<laughs> we do. <laughs> yeah. You do. All of us do. We all we, do. We all underrate that that lack of consistency. Yet our favorite brands have um, an extraordinary level of consistency against every touch point. Mm-hmm. And the, the you know the magical word these days is omni-channel, where we reach people through lots of different ways: social media, direct uh, email, voicemail, conversations. Come visit our location. All those are they considered omni-channel because there's, there's different channels to reach out to people. And if those that omni-channel isn't consistent across the board, it's a complete waste because people don't recognize that it's you, mm-hmm. no matter right. what channel they use to find you. Right. No matter where they land. Mm-hmm. Given this idea of the transformational economy, we've been talking about it in the nonprofit organizational context, but if individuals are shifting this way as well, what do you recommend as the best way for nonprofits to speak to that desire or that newer drive in people? How can they connect with that as an organization? Well, I think that it starts with talking mm-hmm. to and interviewing those who have been through your programs, those who you have served well, and also your your benefactors. Um, and nonprofits have multiple audiences that require different marketing messages. Right. And you can't treat everybody the same because those that consume you have a different uh, trigger for consumption and a different outcome of consumption of your services than those who fund you, no matter if it's individuals or if it's a a grant type of scenario. And so start off by talking to people that have been with you for a while and and ask them questions such as, how have we made a difference in your life? How are you better because of the work we did together? What would have it been like if you hadn't had the experience you had with us? Where would you be today? And so what you want to do is tease out the story of the transformations that you have already affected in your very best um, constituents. Mm -hmm. Now you've got a story to tell to illustrate to others what they can expect. We don't sell transformation through traditional features, advantages, and benefits. Right. We can't do that. The facts and figures. That's not how it works. And that that harkens back to the old product uh, and service economies. And while we would while we were getting tastes of the stories in the experience economy, you still had that enough enough product underlying knowledge where people would talk about features, advantages, and benefits. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't work because you can't sell a product with features, advantages, and benefits that a person will not understand until they have been through the experience. And connecting it to that illustration that's relatable and a clear, powerful visual. Indeed. So the so the way that we do that though is by telling a story of of somebody who has been through the transformation, mm-hmm. and we talk about it as before experience as much as is relevant to a listener or somebody that's not aware of it, and then after mm-hmm. you have to tell it as a hero's journey, right? And sometimes that's the donor themselves. 
Um, I, well, how I would it's expect the donor. So. Right. I, I would, I would do that. I would do it for a donor. I would do it for a, a recipient. Mm-hmm. I would, I would do it for somebody who's granted us in the past. Mm-hmm. somebody who's endowed us in the past, I would ask them those questions so that I had the right transformational story to share with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that encourages others too, when they hear the story. Yes. Because that's what makes it compelling mm-hmm. is if they have a shred of before in their life, they immediately get hooked in. And they want to hear the story and they want to find out how it turns out. Right. And then they want to become a part of it. That's right. And they're going, oh, maybe that'll work for me. One thing I would like to dig into was this idea you mentioned about dysfunctional inertia. Ah, yeah. Because I I see this sometimes in organizations and also in people, like even the grant writers that come to me for help as individuals, they're just stuck and or on a track that is just not working and not feeling right. So dig into that concept. In the book, we call it uh, paradigm attachment disorder. Oh, I love big multi-syllable <laughs> words because I charge by the syllable. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just rack up a huge bill here. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. Paradigm attachment disorder is simply believing that what you've done in the past is going to work in the future. Mm, I hear a lot of board members entrenched in this, and it's really hard to crack. Of course. And it actually, it actually gets into a situation where those board members do not have a, a shred of innovation in their head. It's in unfortunate. Fact, innovation threatens them. Mm-hmm. And so what we look at is we have this balance that we have to bring into bear. We have to bring stability, the steward. Those are the people that don't want to change. But we also have to bring those who are are willing to create change, invoke change, invite change, discover change. And the balance is who runs the show. If it's all the stewardship and we can't change, then you're on a downward slide, which will accelerate more rapidly as time progresses. And on the other hand, if you're all over here where you're doing nothing but change, it's chaotic. Mm-hmm. And you keep changing your messaging. You keep changing your offering. You keep changing and people have no idea. They're all confused. And it goes back to that lack of stability that you mentioned earlier. That's exactly right. We're not stable. So what we have to do is we have to balance these two opposing forces because mm-hmm. we have to have some stability. Otherwise, we don't have resilience. Right. And we have to have change. Otherwise, we don't have innovation. Right. Right. And, so finding that mix. Finding that mix and making sure you don't have one over-energized over the other right. is, is the job, the role of the executive director. Mm-hmm. And if it, yes, well, you a brilliant idea. I'm just curious, your thoughts, the level of balance for each of those may shift in different seasons and different scenarios of what's happening, what they're going through. They may need more of one or the other for a specific time. Yes. And that's where the executive director's wisdom and sagacity mm-hmm. comes into play is understanding it's not the dial gets set to 50% of each. 
Right, right. <laughs> Knowing when to turn each dial a little bit that, more that's or exact, less. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and, you know, if you're on your growth path and you're meeting your goals, then leave the dial where it is. <laughs> and yet if, the, if your forward-looking flag says, you know, I predict that we're going to have a downturn, then we need to turn up the innovation a little bit while we still have plenty of stability. Right, because if you run mm-hmm. out of stability, you don't have any resources for innovation. Right, right. So, in a lot of organizations, what happens is they crash and burn, and then they bring in new blood. Oh, we need to bring in new blood. What well, you didn't have to go that far. Right. You didn't have to wait that long, mm-hmm. or change everything all at once. Sometimes yeah. we just need to change one or two at a time. See how that goes. Let it stabilize then change something else, let it stabilize instead of everything. Well, if we change everything, we might as well start from scratch. Yeah. Might as well blow it up and open a new organization. Right. Because then there's no expectations. And you don't have the chaos. You can do it in a more organized, structured way. Right. Because people come in and go, hmm, what's this? This is new. And then you can lay out the plan and they go, oh, okay, I'll be a part of that. Or no, nah, this is not going to work for me. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, if your plan is to change everything, just nuke it and start all over again. Mm-hmm. It's going to save you an enormous amount of effort and time. And if you get to that point anyway, you probably don't have any resources left. Right, right. I like the the boxes that you have where you compare the different elements of both those sides to keep it in balance and you show. And sometimes we don't need to be so entrenched in more of that scarcity. We need to be more of the open, encouraging, exciting, or forward thinking, but we do need the mix of the stability and the innovation, like you said. Absolutely. we got to have that, that stability as well as uh, we, we had a, a second dimension to this, which is do versus be. Mm-hmm. And we have to recognize um, the, that, that doing is important, but it's also important to, for us to take time to, to, be, uh, to, to be, to think about what it is that we're doing. And uh, actions for, for action's sake doesn't mean that it's good action. Right. And this is where contemplation comes into play. And this is where you put together think tanks that, that say, I wonder what would happen if we did this. And, but we can't over-energize either of those. Yes. And I think often the B part of that gets overlooked or swept aside because they're wearing so many hats and so busy and so much to do that they they feel like they don't have time to be when sometimes that's the most important piece that's missing is taking that time to think and collaborate and just brainstorm, not for a specific meeting or purpose, but just for the purpose of connecting. And that's when the good ideas start to stir up. So sometimes that is a tough balance, but it's a good reminder to deliberately stop and do both. Yes. It's only tough because it's not habitual. Right. And it's only tough because it hasn't typically be done. And it's only tough because corporations have ignored B with, 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 a, few, with a few exceptions, a few obvious exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so bringing the B element to, to it is part of how we operate a transformational environment. 
because in a transformational world, people are, are shifting from being human uh, doings into human beings. Right. It's part of that transformation. So it has to be part of your organizational thought process. We transform because we are better and we can't, we can't are better by just doing that only works in the gym. <laughs> right. But and even to prepare to go to the gym, you've got to be in the right mindset and put the shoes on and decide I'm going to go today. I'm not going to skip it. That's right. Because you've got both ends, which is skip it or go there and overdo it. Mm-hmm. And right? regret that, it later. <laughs> right. And, and it's those are your two extremes. And what we got to do is go to the gym somewhere in the middle. Right. Consistently and reasonably. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's good, a, a good, a good exp- explanation, good metaphor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's relatable. And sometimes we just need a completely different metaphor. Yep. Something outside. That, that's it. So what would you say for a nonprofit who say is just kind of stuck in some of these paradigms, like you've mentioned, like we talked about with the inertia and some dysfunction, where should they start with untangling some of this and with trying to reset some of the thought processes around it? Um, this should be no surprise to you. You start with your vision and you revisit your mission. Mm-hmm. Are you aligned with those things? Or do they need to be reworked? Because the, you know, the vision is what we intend to manifest with our organization. And the mission is what we are currently doing to manifest that in our organization. And a lot of times, if there is lots of chaos, it's because we've gotten off beam. We're not on mission. We're not on vision. And so, therefore, it's very easy for chaos to get implemented because people are well-meaningly doing what they think is the right thing, but it's not contributing to what the organization has in mind. Mm So we have to come back to realigning to our North Star, our, our North Pole, and, and find out, are we, actually, are we actually doing what we say we're going to do? Um, or do we need to change it? That's acceptable. You get to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the key is figuring out what do we want that to look like? And does that still serve our community? Exactly. Because that's really the end goal is serving well, whatever your population is and whatever your mission is. So is it that, still serving them well? Is it what they need? Or do we exactly. need to shift to meet the needs better? Absolutely. Then once you have that in place, then you can start to untangle the threads of no, that's not contributing. That could contribute more if we tune our approach. Yes, that is contributing to where we are going. Yes, those are donors that are still donating to for our mission. Um, these are donors that see our mission has shifted and they're saying, no, we're not going to support that anymore. You can start to take apart the, the, the situation and then apply um, sequence intelligence to what requires our attention first. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the reality is in all situations, you've got to start with what is it we're trying to do and why are we trying to do it and are we on target? That's always the right answer. 
Because <laughs> if we just if we get into tactical fixing things, um, without that, then we're fixing the wrong problem. Mm-hmm. Do we even know what the problem is and why we're trying to fix it? That's exactly right. We may be making a judgment about what's causing the problem when when we have no idea actually what we're trying to accomplish. What's the problem we're trying to solve? Right. Right on. Right. Yeah. Having that core and having the whole team understand that. Sometimes I think operations maybe get in these small groups or certain people are in the know and they either deliberately or not leave other people out of that vision and that focus. And then they're kind of out of the loop and everyone's working at different purposes in different directions. And that's that. That's the problem with culture drift and withholds, which you described mm-hmm. as that mm-hmm. scenario. Those are the, the root causes for what you just described. And what we have to do is fix the culture shift so the withholding stops. So mm-hmm. withholds is a culture problem. Mm-hmm. So what would you say, where would you start with a culture I would, problem? I would start with what is our defined culture? Do we have a defined culture? Is everybody agreeing to abide by our defined culture? And, you know, as um, as uh, Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> and there's there's a great example of that just in what we're, we're bringing up here, where uh, the 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 uh, the culture where withholds are allowed is going to destroy the strategy. Mm-hmm. So we have to go back and fix this fact that we have a we have a closed culture. Uh, we have we have topics we don't talk about. We have topics that we don't share, and so therefore we create this withhold scenario that has all kinds of unintended second and third order effects. Mm -hmm. Do you think the reverse could ever be true where maybe they overshare and then it just stirs up angst and more, I guess, dissension within the organization by oversharing? So oversharing is an interesting challenge because um, one of my clients that I worked with, I, I do CEO coaching. I help them figure out how to grow their businesses. And one client I was working with had that belief absolutely well-meaning, one of the finest people on the planet. I trust him with my wallet. And uh, I don't know what he'd do with my wallet, but I, I would <laughs> trust him with it. And he said, you know, I, I want a transparent organization. And I said, you don't want to do that. What you want is, is the right level of information for the people that you're speaking to. And for example, the people on the front line will be freaked out by your five-year plan <laughs> true, because they have no idea how to get to your big goal. And they're not in the same place you are. No, they're not in the same place in, in terms of perspective, in terms of experience, in terms of knowledge, in terms of resources. And they're just, they're just growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't feed a baby steak or offer them a glass of Cabernet. Right. We don't. We don't do that. So it's it's that level of where are they? That's the information we feed them, and we be completely transparent at that level of knowledge that they can digest and use. Doesn't mean we're keeping secrets. It means that they they earn the right to um, larger and larger pieces of the vision. 
Mm-hmm. People at the front line need small pieces of the vision, close in, something that they can deal with, something that they know how to take care of in the next week, two weeks, three weeks, five months. Mm-hmm. And versus the people at the top are looking three to five years out. Like and you were saying earlier with building over time, that credibility, the integrity, the consistency, see who yes. is doing that and who can handle more and more responsibility and steward it well. Indeed. Well, and if you're a, a forward-thinking executive of a nonprofit, your vision for the future will scare your frontline people. <laughs> Right, it will, and it, in a way, it should. It should. It, it, it should. should if that's the way. It, it, it should. It should. It should make you really excited, and should scare the the living daylights out of everybody else in your organization. <laughs> right. How are we? How are we ever going to do that? How are we ever going to fund that? How are we going to implement that? Of course, because you'll figure that stuff out. Right. And they they have to have it figured out before they see it as a possibility. And that's the difference between a tactical thinker, I've got to figure this out before I can do it, and a strategic thinker, which is, I'm going to do this, now I'll go figure it out. Right, right. So you, exactly. you see, the, the order is slightly reversed. And for a lot of people who's a tactical thinker, moving to that reverse of, I'm going to imagine it, and then I'll go figure it out, is mm-hmm. inconceivable because they have it, it creates too much mental chaos. Right. They're too not much ready. uncertainty. To take that leap. That's That's a big leap when you're not there yet. Yes. Interestingly, I I had a conversation with with an extraordinarily innovative gentleman today uh, who I've known for decades, and I love him dearly, and I love his mind. I love how he thinks. He's extremely innovative. And he shared with me that it's only been in the past year that he's been able to make the mental shift to think strategically because he was trained and rewarded for tactical thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's how we're taught in school. Of, absolutely. You follow the steps, you follow the rules, you go in order. We're not that's taught it. to jump and then figure it out on our way back. No. And and I say this with, with the greatest level of respect. Most teachers have no idea how to teach strategy because mm-hmm. they haven't been taught yeah. strategy either. And we're not taught how to teach it. No. In school. And, and, and actually teaching strategy you know, it's typically attempted at the MBA level. Mm-hmm. And even so, I would I would say that the vast majority of MBAs do not understand strategy. It also comes by experience and mentorship. Right. That is for sure. And you know that that's been mentioned a lot on the show, but just the mentorship piece is so valuable whether it's one-on-one like this with someone or reading books or listening to podcasts and advisors, but choosing strategically who do you want to learn from and what pieces can you glean from each of those people? May I offer you a piece of advice on how to do that? Yes, of course. Choose choose a, a mentor, an advisor, a coach whose history is your future. Mm. Good advice. If they ain't if they ain't done it, they don't know how to do it. Right, right. And of course, that's one of the reasons why we have the challenges that we do. Why don't we have more people teaching strategy? Well, because the number of true strategists on this planet is in the one two percent range. It is rarefied air. Mm-hmm. And so, choose wisely, uh, young one, grasshopper, to. <laughs> as to who's going to teach you strategy. Mm-hmm. And 
and I, I see this frequently where uh, somebody will come and say, let me, let me share with you our strategy. And there's no strategy in what they share. And I, and ask I bet them, it's step by step in order. What they're doing is they're, t- they're actually sharing tactics. Mm-hmm. Here's how we're going to get this done. Then they leave out the strategic components. Mm-hmm. And I, I ask them, you know, define strategy for me. Well, it's the plan on getting where we're going to go. No, that's tactics. The uh, strategy is where are we going to go and why do we want to go there? Mm-hmm. And, and then you, figure out the how as you work through the tactics. That's exactly right. Great example of that is, uh, you know, America putting a, a man on the moon. Mm-hmm. Never been done before. Barely got a person to orbit, and they did it within a decade. They figured it out, but they had to start with a strategy. Let's do something that is really, really hard and has never, ever been done before and is going to cost us a heck of a lot of money. Now, of course, what a lot of people don't realize is what JFK was actually doing was funding the research for intercontinental ballistic missiles and calling it putting a man on the moon. Because the problem set's the same. Mm-hmm. But it was the strategy of what are we going to do? And then backing up to figure out. How do, we, how do we sell this to Americans? Mm-hmm. Americans aren't going to buy. Uh, we're going we're gonna to figure out how to build anti, strategic missiles. They're not going to buy that. <laughs> right. But, but they just might buy the romantic vision of putting a person on the moon. The crazy, impossible, it can't be done kind of thing. That's right. So, yeah. you know, the, the reality is that they were those those initiatives were one and the same. It's just that we had two different outcomes. Right. Sometimes course, it's the positioning of it. I, it is the positioning of it. And that gets back to the motivation for those who are going to be involved. Mm-hmm. Back and to the you, transformation. That's exactly right. What What do these people want to have that's different? And for the military... They wanted to have the might that would cause the other side not to do anything. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they wanted to be big and bad enough that the other side wouldn't risk uh, doing anything. And the other side was, I want to do something romantic. I want to do something big. I want to do something I'm proud of my country about. So there are different motivations, two different audiences, two different motivations, same fundamental technology. Same fundamental service. <laughs> but a very strategic positioning and a way to use it. And both in both sides. That's a great example. And that's a great way to bring it back to the idea of that transformational economy and how can we appeal to that within our organization and then externally in how we relate to other people and invite them. Indeed. Invite them to come on the journey with us. Right. Let us be your tour guide. Yeah. Appeal to that story and that need for deeper meaning with it. it. Exactly right. And that is going to create a whole new outcome. It's going to create a whole new conversation around grant writing. I hope that you're going to have (laughs) some fun turning what we've talked about here into a grant description. Yeah. And I hope it, I hope it sparks some ideas in our listeners and just some creative thinking and how could they approach some problems differently or just some, Sometimes we hit a wall and we just need to step back and look at it a little differently. Well, if you hit a wall, call me. 
That's what yeah. people, that's why people call me. You're the guy. I can, I can provide perspective. I'm the guy that gets people unstuck by offering yeah. them some fresh perspectives. Yeah. Because I'm not afraid to look into the future. Right. And to speak bluntly about, hey, <laughs> you need to get out of your get out of your own way in this piece or shift over here and look at this differently. Yeah. How long do you want this your current situation to continue? Right. Look, okay, because if it's if it's forever, I can't help you. But if, if, <laughs> yeah. if it's I'd Keep really doing like what to, you're doing. <laughs> if, yeah. If it's I'd like to walk out of here with new hope, let's have a conversation. Yeah, let's map what, it out. One thing I want to point out is while these two new books have been written with a with corporations in mind, large corporations specifically, you know, those with more than a hundred people, um, they still are a, a roadmap and a blueprint for small organizations mm-hmm. because every one of the functions in the nimble C suite has to be accomplished. You have to have somebody who looks after the money. You have to look at somebody who looks after the sales or the donations and the marketing. You have to look after somebody that runs the operations and delivers the services that you have offered to your constituents. And somebody who looks after the, what is it that we, who we are at a high level, the B component of that. Mm-hmm. Every one of those elements are there. And we describe in, in, exquisite detail what's required from a mindset and from a skill set, from a habit set, from a tool set to accomplish those roles. So it's a blueprint to help you do better today with a vision of how you might grow into something tomorrow. I mean, what organization wouldn't want to be so successful that they need a C-suite right, and become a United Way or become an American Heart Association or Red Cross? Who wouldn't want to do that? Because I guarantee you, every one of those are operated with a C-suite. Mm-hmm. And every- dare to think, dare to think that big. Why not? Indeed. And- yeah. No, from what I've read, it absolutely would apply to different sizes and even the small nonprofits, because we all need to understand a solid, healthy structure and to be aware of those blind spots as we grow and shift. And so it is valuable to think about it while you're small so that you can grow in a healthier way and understand that vision. Yeah, you're going to avoid the stupid tax. <laughs> Let's hope so. Well, yeah, <laughs> as much think, as possible. Yeah, and I think a really good example of that is t- typically within nonprofits, we promote people or put people into organizational slots because they're enthusiastic or they're loyal. And we blow the organization up because they don't have the they don't have the skills. Right. And put and, good people in the wrong seats. Oh, uh, big problem. Yeah. And and everybody's miserable, including that person. Right. Versus versus with the nimble C suite, you can get an idea of what's the temperament, what's the worldview, what are the skill sets that they need to be successful there, so that you put the right person in the right place. And they operate out of their zone of genius continuously. And as, as one of my friends said, you know, if you promote people who are enthusiastic idiots, they will enthusiastically screw up the company. Right. That's true. Unfortunate, but true. So good. Yeah. Well, you have written plenty of your own books, obviously, and have your own programs. But what's a resource in particular that's been meaningful to you in your journey? Oh my gosh, uh, that the answer to that question is absolutely simple. It's Robert Cialdini's Influence the Psychology of Persuasion, probably mm-hmm. the most important book I have read in terms of business. Okay. And the reason why is because if we're going to be successful, 
in grant writing, if we're going to be successful in running an organization, if we're going to be successful in getting our services into the right people's hands, we have to have influence. We have to have persuasion. And Cialdini's book in in extraordinary ways lays out the six key elements of how we can do that. And so, geez, why aren't you talking about one of your books, Mark? Well, the reason why is Cialdini is, is just inculcated in my body. It's inculcated in all my work. I use Cialdini um, unconsciously because I have been working with his work for, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years. So, mm-hmm. go, gosh, go get it. Go get the audible. Whatever you need to do, master those six principles of influence. And if we took the time and, and I shared them with you, you could see that I've used all six in our conversation today. Mm, okay. Now I'm curious. I'll have to listen back and look at them. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. But but they could become invisible. Mm-hmm. It becomes you, natural to you. That's exactly right. It becomes and and it works. Mm-hmm. You know, if the if if the listener has stayed with us this long, it's it's worked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good to know. And now you've got us curious enough. We're probably all going to go out and buy the book and read it. Well, I hope so. Or borrow yeah. it from the or buy it from the or borrow it from the library. Get sure. the Kindle edition. Whatever. Right. The book. The book is a fun read. It's it. It will blow okay. your mind. Okay. Good to know. I'm always on the lookout for a good book. And so, speaking of, tell us where can people connect to learn more about you, and tell us again the names of your books. Which, if someone's watching us on YouTube, of course they can see them. But if they're listening on the show, tell us all the details. Well, uh, quite frankly, I think for most nonprofits, uh, the Nimble C Suite would be the most valuable book for executives. Other books are much more tactical. Um, as far as, uh, you know, I've written books on telesales and trade shows and negotiating and, and technology, how to sell technology, all those kind of things. So they're less germane um, in terms of what uh, a, a nonprofit exec would want to accomplish. So I think that probably the Nimble C-Suite is going to be the most valuable one out of the box. Perhaps the Nimble Company, if they need to be more tactical, C-Suite is more strategic and Nimble Company is more tactical. And it's probably good to read them in that order, correct? Uh, That's the order I'm reading them just because that's how you've presented them usually online. Yeah, I would recommend that to a top officer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that would be be what I suggest that you do. Um, And, you know, if, if... I've said something here that sparked you and said, you know, gee, Mark, I've got a blood spurting problem and, you know, you might be able to to help me. Call me. Mm -hmm. My phone number is 719-440-0439. So 719-440-0439. It would ring this cell phone. And um, now you might be thinking, Mark, are you absolutely insane handing your phone out and say, call me? Well, you know who calls me? People who need me. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) Yeah, and that's a generous offer because I know you will. I mean, I've talked with you before, and I know that you're happy to pour into people and listen and shoot straight and just help people untangle what they're stuck with. You know, and and the reality is, I'll you know, I'll I'll give you 20 minutes of my time and see what we can do. And you know, Mm -hmm. if you think you're going to be that valuable, let's go out and find one of your donors who's who's willing to to pay for my services. Mm -hmm. There we go. 
you know, that's, it's a pretty simple thing to do is we'll figure out how to pay for me if, if that's what's required. Otherwise, connect with me on uh, LinkedIn. Yeah. That's, that's a great way to stay in contact. And I think it's probably the most relevant thing right now is, is, is yeah. to do that. Mark's on LinkedIn.com or search Mark S.A. Smith on LinkedIn and you'll find me. If, if you don't use the S.A., you'll never find me. <laughs> Too many Mark Smiths out there. Yeah, it's a popular name. Yeah, good name, but yeah, everybody yeah, took it. That's right. Two, two, two one-syllable phrases, Mark Smith. Yep. (laughs) No, that's great. Well, and I will link to everything in the show notes, of course, and to the books we've talked about and your website as well and your LinkedIn profile so people can easily connect and find you. But I appreciate your time and sharing the wisdom. And I think we've gone just about as long as you said. (laughs) So yeah, but very worthwhile. And I hope this inspires people to look at things differently and think differently about their nonprofit, their organization, and how they can bring some creativity and innovation to their work. Yep. And if you've listened to this and you've said, yeah, but that's the first thing you got to work on. (laughs) Yeah. Call it like it is. (laughs) That's it. Thank you. It's been a delight to be here. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Thank you. It's been an honor. Okay. What'd you think of this conversation? (laughs) I know it went a little long, but I also know he had so much valuable stuff to say. And I really hope it challenged you to at least think about your work a little bit differently, whether you are an individual grant writer or you are in the trenches of a nonprofit specifically. How can this challenge you to have that balance like he was talking about of the stability, but also that innovation and forward thinking? So I want to challenge you to sit with this idea and like we talked about, give yourself time to be and think, not just do and go, 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 but also step back and have that time to be and let the ideas build and stew and just brain dump in a notebook, whatever you need to do. Just let yourself get creative and explore maybe some new alternatives or ways of problem solving or ways of collaborating. So I would love to hear what this has sparked for you and how you will use it with your team if you're working with a nonprofit. Feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or connect with me on my website and let me know what you're up to. Also, please share my TEDx talk, The Real ROI of Grant Writing, so that we can all help be a part of helping nonprofits and supporting them in the work that they're doing. So have a great week and go change your world. (laughs) 